Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we are going to round out al-Mansur's epic reign as the Ummah's second Abbasid Caliph. We've already covered many of his challenges and achievements, and we'll now focus on his internal policies, from founding a new capital to his plans for succession. His departure from precedent established a new paradigm of sorts, making all these changes worthy of special attention. While things were transforming rapidly on the political and administrative fronts, the social stability of al-Mansur's reign enabled the Ummah to prosper both commercially and intellectually, all of which helped the Caliphate inch closer to empire. Episode 47 The City of Peace Our coverage of this influential caliph began with me lamenting how the thematic approach I adopted with comparable leaders before him inadvertently minimized the scale of their accomplishments. I pledged that I'll do better, shortly before falling into the same trap I had so perceptively identified. It's simply that these men either impacted the ummah on so many fronts, or dealt with such a wide gamut of challenges, usually both that discussing their reigns chronologically would have been at best burdensome and at worst impenetrably confusing. I'm not giving up this time, however, and we will weave in all the themes we already discussed about the Caliph's reign as we introduce the ones we haven't. My hope is that this will give us a more accurate measure of Al-Mansur's remarkable aptitude and historical significance. It'll make this an extra long episode, just like all our recent ones about him, so we'd better get started. Although the developments we'll be focusing on today happen towards the middle of Al-Mansur's reign, we'll take it from the top. Strap in, as a lot of information is going to be coming at you real fast. He became caliph in 754 and immediately had to contend with his uncle Abdullah's rebellion. He got two birds with one stone by convincing Abu Muslim to face the dangerous threat posed by his uncle's armies, then having the increasingly powerful and autonomous Khurasani governor put to death. The next few years were largely consumed by uprisings in the east, the most serious of which were the Karajite Mulabbad al-Shaybani in Jazeera and the Zoroastrian Sunpath, who looted Abu Muslim's treasuries in Isfahan. While both uprisings had been dealt with by 756, the issue had not yet been resolved because the money was still missing and being used against the Caliphate, either by the disloyal former commander Ibn Marrar or Khurshid, king of Tabaristan. This was a packed year. In it, the Umayyad Abdul Rahman became Emir in faraway Andalusia, and the Ummah's armies were busy putting up a forceful response to Byzantine aggression in Syria. In a first for the two powers, war prisoners were exchanged, after which they entered into a truce which lasted about nine years, a clear indication that the Caliph prioritized addressing threats in the east. In 758, the new governor of Khurasan stepped out of line, and the Caliph sent an army commanded by his 15-year-old son Al-Mahdi to deal with the renegade. It was also the year in which the Rawandiyya arrived in Iraq and mobbed the Caliph in his palace, and events many accounts claim gave al-Mansur a close brush with death. The next few years were also all about the East. 
Having readily defeated the governor of Khurasan, al-Mahdi was ordered to commence the invasion of Tabaristan, then to make his court at Rai, at the very western edge of Khurasan. The war in Tabaristan took a couple of years, and was followed by the invasion of Daylam and the conquest of the rest of the region. This was also the year the governor of Sindh was forcefully removed, so everything from 754 to 760 was pretty much about re-establishing Abbasid control in the east. Before we move on, can we just take a minute to admire how capable al-Mansur comes off just six years in? His handling of his rivals at the very outset of his reign was masterful. His quick and decisive response to the many crises in the east after the execution of the popular Abu Muslim shows that he was aware of how consequential it would be. His truce with the Byzantines is yet another example of al-Mansur, the statesman. He clearly understood the limits of his power and wisely chose to prioritize the objectives he deemed most important, in this case, the East. I really can't praise his decision-making enough. From supplying troops to China in their time of need in order to mend fences with the Tang dynasty, to picking fights he could win while delaying those he couldn't, Al-Mansur's record was damn near spotless so far. This brings us up to 761. News from the East slows to a trickle, and our sources shift their focus to a subject which loomed large in the Caliph's mind, and according to our sources, certainly worried al-Mansur a great deal, his Hashemite kin. The issue is that there were those who had pledged their fealty to the pious Muhammad the pure soul, whom al-Mansur tried desperately hard to capture. Late in 761, the Caliph put the ruthless Riyah in charge of Mecca and Medina. The new governor promptly got to work, and before long he had arrested quite a few of Muhammad's clansmen. News of their brutal torture forced the pure soul to pull the trigger on his rebellion prematurely. As we heard in episode 45, the whole thing collapsed, and within a few months both he and his brother Ibrahim were killed, dashing the hopes of anyone who wanted a direct descendant of the Prophet to rule the Ummah. While the caliph was characteristically decisive in his identification and elimination of the threat from his kin, I think his response was imprudent and myopic. The short-term problem posed by Muhammad was resolved, but it was replaced by an enduring schism which never truly healed. It might be a little unfair to blame al-Mansur for developments which took place long after he passed away, but like I highlighted in our previous episode about the intra-Hashemite struggle, the foundation of a whole new sect within Islam was laid shortly after the caliph's massacre of the rebellious elements from within his clan. It stands to reason that a different approach could have led to different results, but let's stop and turn back to our subject before hypotheticals and conjecture get the better of us. It was only after he dealt with the Hashemites that al-Mansur came to feel secure in his reign. Even though 762 was the year the Khazars descended on the Caliphate's north and ravaged it for the next two years, it is clear from the oral narrations that the Caliph was no longer in survival mode. This comes through most plainly in his new commitment to long-term projects, projects which he had clearly been pondering for some time, like the foundation of a tremendous new capital in Iraq and sidelining his nephew Isa ibn Musa in favor of his son al-Mahdi as next in line for the throne. Another strong hint is his dispensing of armies to deal with distant foes, like the Khawarij in Africa, the Khazars and Armenians in the north, and the new Umayyad Amir of Andalusia, all sent after 761. 
It is in this assertive phase that we will take a break from our chronological rush through his reign to discuss his new city and succession plans. Ironically, the years following the Hashemite massacre, which I just referred to as the Caliph's long-term blunder, are widely thought of as the start of the first Abbasid Golden Age. This lofty designation is owed in no small part to the construction of Al-Mansur's new capital, which would grow to be the most populous and prosperous city in the world in a mere 150 years. I feel like the Caliph should get much of the credit for this, as so many of his choices displayed considerable long-term planning. Originally, the project was conceived as a new court, and many narrations say this was something Al-Mansur realized he needed after the Rawandiya movement had placed him in mortal danger back in 759. Instead of settling for a regular old court, however, the newly self-assured caliph splurged big time, going for an extravagant administrative center that put all previous ones to shame. The court's genius lay not in its constitutive parts, all of which were pretty standard, really, a palace, a mosque, and some public offices. It was the choice of geography and architecture which really set this project apart. Nothing conveys state power and control quite like a dedication to geometrical symmetry, and Al-Mansur put all the Ummah's best craftsmen to work on perfecting his new capital. It took 100,000 laborers over five years to complete, and while its official name was Medinat Salam, or City of Peace, its perfectly circular walls ensured it was known as the Round City. All our sources boast about its flawlessness, as do many others, both Arab and foreign, centuries down the line. It had three sets of walls, all impeccably circular. The heart of the city had a diameter of about two kilometers, and in its center sat the caliph's gold-domed palace and a striking mosque. Surrounding these two masterpieces of architecture were lush gardens and some residences for the caliph's sons and direct family scattered about. At the periphery of this not-so-little Eden sat various public bureaus, like the treasury, the armory, and other offices necessary for the functioning of the new capital. The first set of walls wrapped around all that real estate, with only bureaucrats, officials, and servants allowed within. A fun fact we're told is that everyone had to go around on foot, as Al-Mansur himself was the only one allowed to ride inside the walls of his city. Outside them were houses for state functionaries, a small barracks for peacekeeping and a prison. Beyond those were the main and outer walls, separated only by a wide, empty avenue. Finally, just beyond the outer walls was a moat that wrapped around the perfect imperial court. The impressive design was only one half of the equation, though, and anyone will tell you that when it comes to cities, it's all about location, location, location. Now, there are plenty of unlikely stories in our sources about how Al-Mansur picked the site for his new city, but they're not worth going through in detail. There are ones where various prominent Arabs take the credit for guiding the caliph to the spot, and other more mystical ones where Al-Mansur just happens to fit into prophecies about how a great man will one day establish the capital of the world at the site. There are more sensible reasons for the location that we should privilege over these fanciful tales, like how it was a spot where the two mighty rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates pinched closer together, and how it was somewhat equidistant from the Iraqi cities of Basra, Kufa, and Musud. Roads to these and other important regions were laid as the city was being built, 
and when it was finished, it had four straight perpendicular streets intersecting it, each passing through a single gate bearing the name of the land it led to. The one to the northeast was the gate of Khurasan, to the northwest was the gate of Syria, to the southeast the gate of Basra, and to the southwest the gate of Kufa. This network only added to the city's symmetry, and is probably what inspired Al-Yaqubi to praise it as sitting at the very axis of the universe. There is much we can say about the city of peace, because our sources are a little obsessed with it, but I want to keep the spotlight on the things that matter most going forward, like Khurasan, instead of fixating on how the caliph had a golden statue of a horseman sitting atop his palace dome, one that would be spun around so that it pointed its sword facing the direction in which al-Mansur would next send his armies. Okay, that detail was a little too good to skip, but let's turn our focus to Khurasan. I've already dedicated a good chunk of time arguing that al-Mansur understood the pivotal importance of the province and describing how he based his own power on the loyalty of its armies, but I've got plenty more supporting material to add. The fact that he placed his new capital on the road to Khurasan basically ensured that it was the first impression anyone coming from the east would get of the Abbasids. Talk about putting your best foot forward. As if to reinforce the relationship al-Mansur hoped to establish between the province and his son, he built an expansive mansion for al-Mahdi right on the western bank of the Tigris, making it the very first building of considerable magnificence someone arriving from Khurasan would see. But by far the most impactful policy of al-Mansur's on this subject came from his use of land grants. The round city itself was off-limits to everyone who had no business being there, of course, but the land around it quickly became some of the hottest real estate in the entire caliphate. It was rapidly developed, and eventually the whole urban sprawl came to be known by the name of a nearby town to its north, Baghdad. The usual suspects all got chunks here and there, like the Abbasids and their loyalists, but the biggest group the caliph made gifts of these lands to were the leaders of the Khurasaniyya. This not only kept them happy, but it also gave the troops a home away from home. While the leaders of the Khurasaniyya seemed to be almost entirely of Arab stock, the rank and file all hailed from the east, and these grants were the first tether tying them to Iraq. They could now start or relocate families by the new capital, and they largely settled in the area to the northwest of the round city. It is not long after this that a new term crops up in our sources, with many speakers referring to the Khurasaniyya as Abna'ad-Dawla, or Sons of the State. The implication is clear. These foreign armies became inseparably associated with the caliph. They were his forces, and he looked after their interests more keenly than he did the rest. This special relationship between al-Mansur and the Khurasaniyya paid off several times over. He could fully rely on their loyalty since he was their benevolent sponsor in a land where others considered them strangers. They protected him whenever the need arose, and their loyalty and foreignness kept the Arab elements of the army from congealing into rival coalitions as they had in Umayyad times. But the astute caliph also managed to extend their influence beyond his own reign, by using them to justify the transfer of succession from his nephew Isa ibn Musa to his son Muhammad al-Mahdi. Let's back up a little for some context. Isa had been named as al-Mansur's successor by the first Abbasid caliph, al-Saffah, 
who likely just wanted to make sure that there was someone to continue the new dynasty in the event that both he and his brother passed away in short order. Now, whether Isa was just a placeholder, and the whole wisdom of naming two successors are both topics which later histories dispute, but whatever the case may be, it is besides the point. No matter how powerful Al-Mansur was, he couldn't just sideline Isa in favor of Al-Mahdi without good cause. I would like nothing more than to break down how he achieved this for you, but unfortunately it's one of those controversial events where we find plenty of different tellings in our sources about how it happened, and so we'll have to make do with noting the elements that they have in common to try and piece together something sensible. The stories are very different, but they all start with Isa trying to resist the caliph's changes to the order of succession before finally relenting. Some say Isa was coerced, others that he was tricked into submission. We find claims about various influential figures saying they had been instrumental in helping al-Mansur get the better of his nephew, while other accounts say it was Isa's son who convinced him to accede to the caliph's request after growing concerned for his father's safety. Regardless the content of the narration, it usually starts with a no from Isa and ends with an, well, all right then. We also hear repeated mentions of the sum 10,000 dirhams, which was allegedly the compensation paid to Isa by the caliph to get him on board with the new arrangement. Another common theme in the various tellings are the Khurasaniya, though each narration emphasizes or downplays their roles to a different degree. In some tellings, the Khurasaniya were directly responsible for al-Mahdi's succession, after they rioted and demanded he be recognized by the Ummah as next in line. Some claim that al-Mansur had staged that protest, while others describe more subtle approaches altogether. There is probably no way of determining what exactly took place, but considering how the caliph did all he could to make sure his son had strong ties to the east, it makes sense that the Khurasaniya were a major asset for al-Mahdi's candidacy. Just comparing Isa and al-Mahdi, it is clear who had the upper hand when this succession drama was going down. Under orders from his father, al-Mahdi had made his court in Rai, where he endeared himself to the people of the east. Officially, he was vice-regent, but since all the actual governors there were local Arabs, al-Mahdi's position was just a way of formalizing the relationship between him and these influential men. On the other hand, Isa had been the long-time governor of Kufa, and while that gave him some sway over its elders, the people of Kufa had far less power than the Khurasaniya. Isa had also led Abbasid forces on their brutal campaigns against the Hashemites, an unpopular pair of lopsided conflicts which cost him support among the Arabs, even if it was a great favor to the Abbasid dynasty. With al-Mansur's masterful planning, it is reasonable to assume that this was a premeditated choice on his part, especially considering how Isa was replaced by al-Mahdi not long after those battles had been won. Before we return to our chronology of al-Mansur's reign, I just want to note that the more dramatic narrations about the succession shakeup, the ones that report more extreme events like Isa being threatened, fooled, or somehow humiliated, can't be taken seriously. I say that because he was still in line for the throne, except now after al-Mahdi, so clearly there couldn't have been a deep rift between him and the caliphate. He was, however, removed from his post as governor of Kufa, and replaced by a favored cousin of the caliphs named Muhammad ibn Sulaiman. We'll have more to say about Muhammad later, but as far as Isa is concerned, I suppose it's fair to say that he was socially demoted, 
but he remained an important member of the ruling family. Let's finish off our chronology. All these events took place around the same time. Work on the Round City started in 762 and it took about five years. Isa was replaced by Muhammad as governor and al-Mahdi as next in line during this period, either in 763 or 64. These were also the years in which the Khazars descended upon the Ummah, and we also hear about hostilities against the Armenians and Byzantines in the north and the Ibadi Karajites to the west in Africa, all in the mid-760s. In 767, Ustad Sisi's rebellion got the better of Maru and posed a real challenge to Abbasid supremacy in Khurasan, so the Caliph dispatched legendary general Khazim ibn Khuzayma, nominally under the command of his son al-Mahdi, vice-regent of the east and now next in line for the throne. It took Khazim a little over a year to defeat the rebels, and the conclusion of that campaign coincided with the intensification of the one in Africa against the Karajites. The next year, 768, was when Ma'an ibn Zaid al-Shaybani was killed in Bust, and shortly after we hear reports of Arab raids on Kabul and beyond. I'm going through this foreign war stuff quickly because we literally just had an episode on it last time. I'm just looking to weave these events into the rest of al-Mansur's reign to provide a fuller picture of all the crises he had to attend to. I'm going to stop now, but just know that the one enduring problem for the caliph beyond this point was Ifriqiya, and he continued to send it new commanders and armies until that huge one led by a Muhallabite around 770 got the job done. Meanwhile, the warring against the Byzantines grew increasingly successful, and we find narrations describing triumphs on a scale that matches what the Umayyads had once inflicted, leading the emperor to eventually sue for peace and agree to pay the caliphate tribute. I want to turn our focus back to the capital, and I'm going to use a curious narration found in Al-Tabari's history to do so. He reports that in 770, new court costumes were mandated in the round city, leading the Arabs to complain about these strange outfits they now had to don. It might be an odd point to zoom in on, but I think it provides some insight. The new capital had given rise to a previously unseen class, the civil servant, and this marks a milestone for Arab power and its trajectory from the religious and tribal zeal of the early Ummah to the courtly machinations of an imperium. But to round out the account of the costumes first, Courtiers were required to wear long clothes, often black, with a pointy hat. The dresses, or robes, or whatever, were so lengthy that many had them outfitted with reeds on the inside so that they wouldn't trip on them. Though honestly, I have a hard time imagining how that worked. The Arabs claim these new uniforms resembled Sassanid court attire, a notable assertion because it is among the first hints of the influence that culture would exert on the caliphate. However, I caution listeners that we ought to be a little skeptical when we hear about Persian influence. Our sources lived in an age that was heavily influenced by Persia, so it might be that they were reading their own present into the past. Persian culture will eventually blossom within the caliphate a few generations down the line, but it will owe its start not to the court, but a different part of the state. Let's stick with the court for a moment. What was it exactly? See, this large and complicated administrative center that al-Mansur had built created a need for a multitude of people to run the place, and by the court, I am referring specifically to those whose functions involved daily interaction with the caliph, mainly servants, 
though I use the term in its widest possible sense. The top job at court was that of the hajib, a position that used to be somewhere between a bodyguard and an usher back in Umayyad times. The hajib was still responsible for managing access to the caliph, but now he was more of a cross between an advisor and a personal assistant. Almost always a freedman, the hajib had to organize the caliph's appointments and take care of any matters the caliph didn't feel like attending to in person. Since the caliph would delegate his power to the hajib, he was sometimes referred to as a wazir, literally someone who shares your burden. It's not a promotion or anything. I counsel listeners to not get hung up on these titles. My point is that the hajib, somewhat paradoxically, was at times one of the most powerful people in the ummah, while simultaneously being no more than the property of his master, the caliph. There's a really good story about this tension we find in our sources, told by al-Mansur's first hajib, Abu Ayyub al-Muriyani. It goes that Abu Ayyub was once holding court and dispensing orders to a bunch of high-ranking officials when a messenger walked in and announced that al-Mansur would like a word with him. Abu Ayyub went white, and as he nervously left the room, he saw how everyone had noticed his sudden change in demeanor. When he returned, he was his old self again, and as he walked in, he asked those present whether they had heard the tale of the falcon and the rooster. He proceeded to tell them that one day a well-trained hunting falcon found the rooster just doing his thing, idly grazing in some garden, when it flew down and admonished him. The falcon called the rooster an ungrateful fool for mistrusting and fearing the caliph's men after having been raised by them ever since he was just an egg. The falcon added that this unfortunate attitude was why the rooster had to remain fenced in, because he ran away whenever anyone walked by, and if left alone, he would never return. Finally, the falcon contrasted this to its own experience, saying that it had only been captured from the wild a few years ago, but quickly realized that its captors treated it well and sought only its welfare. Therefore, it was completely loyal and would obey its new masters unflinchingly, even when being called back to them while flying freely in the open sky. Hearing all this, the rooster responded that the falcon could not understand his plight, for it had never seen inside of the caliph's kitchens and ovens. Due to his important position as the caliph's PA, the hajib had a unique understanding of how dangerous it was to be a prominent member of the ummah. As if to really hammer this point in, we're told that Abu Ayyub and his whole family were soon put to death by al-Mansur, having been accused of impropriety. The next hajib was a freedman of the caliph named Rabia bin Yunus, and I'm sure just knowing how his position had opened up gave this rooster as good a view into the caliph's proverbial kitchen as his predecessor had once enjoyed. So if the development of the capital gave rise to a new bureaucracy at court, we can find a parallel in the development of the wider caliphate, particularly Iraq. I'm going to work my way up to this one, so bear with me for a moment. The founding of the City of Peace had led to a boom in the area immediately surrounding it, but al-Mansur did not neglect any of Iraq's fertile soil. He invested great sums in agricultural infrastructure across its lands to maximize their output. We find an amusing example in a story we're told about Kufa, where the caliph looked to finance some new canals to irrigate its fields. He first announced that every resident of Kufa would get five dirhams from the treasury, leading everyone to enthusiastically come asking for their share of the wealth. 
Shortly after the money had been distributed, he announced that every Kufin had to contribute 40 dirhams to pay for the new canals, adding that he knew exactly how many of them there were, so they better pay up. The caliph was quite clever when it came to money, and his nickname Abu Dawaniq is difficult to translate. Perhaps Mr. Smallchange brings us close enough. He became known for stinginess, but honestly, recalling how Hisham also had the same bad rep, I feel like the Arabs called anyone who balanced the budget and left a surplus miserly for not pissing away prodigal sums on tribal awards, poets, harems, or whatever. Anyway, this isn't the direction I want the story of Kufa's new canals to take. I want to focus on taxation more generally. Given the extensive investments made throughout the caliphate, tax collection became an increasingly necessary and complicated endeavor. The men who performed it had to have certain skills that made them more difficult to replace than servants or warriors. They had to be educated beyond mere literacy, itself no small ask back then. There was even a benefit to their being locals, as that gave them a better understanding of the areas they were assigned. Before al-Mansur's reign was even over, the groundwork for a whole new class of civil servant had been laid, and the Qutab, Arabic for those who write, would quickly become a powerful force in the Ummah. I wanted to highlight these two important bureaucracies because I think they came into being as a result of al-Mansur's empire building. There were others, though, both from within and outside the state, like the military, the religious classes, and those belonging to communities ruled but not governed by the caliphate, just to name a few. Many of these would grow and evolve now that the Ummah had made strides towards becoming a fully-fledged empire, and we'll chart their paths as we proceed with our history. While I really want to keep the show's focus on the political, it would be unwise to ignore these developments, as they will eventually come to have a decisive impact on the caliphate's administration. Although the new capital went a long way towards enabling the transformation of these groups and the refinement of their ideas, it would take a few generations for them to produce something we can devote any attention to. But as if to blaze the trail for the many visionaries who would come after him, one man in Basra single-handedly sparked an intellectual revolution within the caliphate. Al-Khalil ibn Ahmad al-Farahidi, born in Oman back in Umayyad times, put so much thought into the Arabic language that he formalized it into a vehicle capable of representing, communicating, and supporting a budding civilization's intellectual output. His earliest work was on prosody, or the rhythm of speech, and from it he identified and defined all accepted meters of Arabic poetry. He produced its first dictionary, and his investigation of the language resulted in his expounding of all its grammar. It is difficult to pick his most enduring contribution, but perhaps the safest choice lies in his refinement of the Arabic script, which he modified into the version we know today by adding diacritic marks and reworking other aspects of textual representation. He did most of this during al-Mansur's stable reign, and although I'd love to point to the caliph's capital as the cause of it all, al-Farahidi shunned all wealth and official appointments, preferring instead to live a humble life in a reed hut in Basra. Al-Mansur's reign was quite a ride for all involved, and I want to say a few words about the impressions were left of the man before wrapping up our last episode about him. The awesome legacy he built after more than 20 years in charge of the Ummah certainly gave us plenty of material to work with, but reading about his time in charge, I couldn't shake the feeling that there was this thin curtain 
shrouding the real Al-Mansur behind it. It's difficult to explain, but so many of these stories about him feel somehow curated, like they couldn't outrun his legendary reputation. It's not that they're all overwhelmingly positive, it's just that they all bestow so much respect on this crucial and inimitable figure. They are a far cry from state propaganda, but at the same time it's clear that our authors and speakers had an overwhelmingly favorable impression of the caliph, and they depict him as someone who simply knew best, almost like a father to the ummah, guiding it through its new civilizational phase. Al-Mansur rose to the throne in the mid-750s, and in less than a decade he centralized the caliphate's power like never before, then set his sights on building a lasting empire to rival all those previously known to the Arabs. His founding of its new capital in Iraq marked a point of no return, and Baghdad would prove to be an effective catalyst in the Ummah's evolution towards empire, with meaningful impacts in all of its politics, its social fabric, its intellectual vitality, and so much more. He ruled unchallenged for another decade, and by the time Al-Mansur passed away in 775, the caliphate resembled the one our authors lived and wrote in more than it did the tribal past they romanticized. His son, Al-Mahdi, was pledged to without incident shortly afterwards, a transition we will use to start our next episode, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.